Part Ten of the Naval War of eighteen twelve by Theodore Roosevelt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Ten. The Enterprise under Lieutenant Commander Renshaw now cruised off the southern coast, where she made several captures. One of them was a heavy British privateer, the Mars of fourteen long nines and seventy-five men which struck after receiving a broadside that killed and wounded four of a crew the enterprise was chased by frigates on several occasions being once forced to throw overboard all her guns but two and escaping only by a shift in the wind afterward as she was unfit to cruise she was made a guardship at charleston for the same reason the boxer was not purchased into the service on october fourth some volunteers from the newport flotilla captured by boarding the british privateer dart footnote letter of mr joseph nicholson october fifth eighteen thirteen end of footnote after a short struggle in which two of the assailants were wounded and several of the privateersmen, including the first officer, were killed. On December 4th, Commodore Rogers, still in command of the President, sailed again from Providence, Rhode Island. On the 25th, in latitude 19 degrees north and longitude 35 degrees west, the President, during the night, fell in with two frigates and came so close that the headmost fired at her, when she made off these were thought to be british but were in reality the two french forty-gun frigates nymph and medusa one month out of brest after this little encounter rogers headed toward the barbados and cruised to windward of them on the whole the ocean warfare of eighteen thirteen was decidedly in favor of the british except during the first few months the hornet's fight with the peacock was an action similar to those that took place in eighteen twelve and the cruise of porter was unique in our annals both for the audacity with which it was planned and the success with which it was executed even later in the year the argus and the president made bold cruises in sight of the british coasts the former working great havoc among the merchantmen but by that time the tide had turned strongly in favor of our enemies from the beginning of summer the blockade was kept up so strictly that it was with difficulty any of our vessels broke through it they were either chased back or captured in the three actions that occurred the british showed themselves markedly superior in two and in the third the combatants fought equally well the result being fairly decided by the fuller crew and slightly heavier metal of the enterprise the gunboats to which many had looked for harbor defense proved nearly useless and were beaten off with ease whenever they made an attack the lessons taught by all this were the usual ones lawrence's victory in the hornet showed the superiority of a properly trained crew to one that had not been properly trained and his defeat in the chesapeake pointed exactly the same way 
demonstrating in addition the folly of taking a raw levy out of port and before they have had the slightest chance of getting seasoned pitting them against skilled veterans the victory of the enterprise showed the wisdom of having the odds in men and metal in our favor when our antagonists were otherwise our equal it proved what hardly needed proving that whenever possible a ship should be so constructed as to be superior in force to the foes it would be likely to meet as far as the capture of the argus showed anything it was the advantage of heavy metal and the absolute need that a crew should fight with pluck the failure of the gunboats ought to have taught the lesson though it did not that too great economy in providing the means of defence may prove very expensive in the end and that good officers and men are powerless when embarked in worthless vessels a similar point was emphasized by the strictness of the blockade and the great inconvenience it caused namely that we ought to have had ships powerful enough to break it we had certainly lost ground during this year fortunately we regained it during the next two british vessels sunk or taken the peacock twenty guns four hundred and seventy seven tons the boxer fourteen guns one hundred eighty one tons the high flyer six guns ninety six tons for a total of forty guns and seven hundred and fifty four tons american vessels sunk or taken the chesapeake fifty guns tonnage one thousand two hundred sixty five the argus twenty guns tonnage two hundred ninety eight and the viper ten guns tonnage one hundred and forty eight for a total of eighty guns and one thousand seven hundred and eleven tons vessels built or purchased the rattlesnake the brig fourteen guns two hundred and seventy eight tons was built in medford pennsylvania and cost eighteen thousand dollars the alligator was a schooner had four guns eighty tons the asp sloop had three guns fifty six tons and it cost two thousand six hundred dollars prizes made the president thirteen prizes the congress four prizes the chesapeake six prizes the essex fourteen prizes the hornet three prizes the argus twenty-one prizes small craft had eighteen prizes for a total of seventy-nine prizes chapter six eighteen thirteen on the lakes ontario winter had almost completely stopped preparations on the american side bad weather put an end to all communication with albany or new york and so prevented the transit of stores implements etc it was worse still with the men for the cold and exposure so thinned them out that the new arrivals could at first barely keep the ranks filled it was moreover exceedingly difficult to get seamen to come from the coast to serve on the lakes where work was hard sickness prevailed and there was no chance of prize money the british government had the great advantage of being able to move its sailors where it pleased 
while in the american service at that period the men enlisted for particular ships and the only way to get them for the lakes at all was by inducing portions of crews to volunteer to follow their officers thither footnote cooper volume two page three fifty seven one of james's most comical misstatements is that on the lakes the american sailors were all picked men on page three hundred sixty seven for example in speaking of the battle of lake erie he says commodore perry had picked crews to all his vessels as a matter of fact perry had once sent in his resignation solely on account of the very poor quality of his crews and had with difficulty been induced to withdraw it perry's crews were of hardly average excellence but then the average american sailor was a very good specimen End of footnote. however the work went on in spite of interruptions fresh gangs of shipwrights arrived and largely owing to the energy and capacity of the head builder mr henry eckford who did as much as any naval officer in giving us an effective force on ontario the madison was equipped a small dispatch sloop the lady of the lake prepared and a large new ship the general pike twenty eight begun to mount thirteen guns in each broadside and two on pivots meanwhile sir george prevost the british commander in canada had ordered two twenty-four gun ships to be built and they were begun but he committed the mistake of having one laid down in kingston and the other in york at the opposite end of the lake earl the canadian commodore having proved himself so incompetent was removed and in the beginning of may captain sir james lucas yeo arrived to act as commander-in-chief of the naval forces together with four captains eight lieutenants twenty-four midshipmen and about four hundred fifty picked seamen sent out by the home government especially for service on the canada lakes footnote james volume six page three fifty three and footnote the comparative force of the two fleets or squadrons it is hard to estimate i have already spoken of the difficulty in finding out what guns were mounted on any given ship at a particular time and it is even more perplexing with the crews a schooner would make one cruise with but thirty hands on the next it would appear with fifty a number of militia having volunteered as marines finding the militia rather a nuisance they would be sent ashore and on her third cruise the schooner would substitute half a dozen frontier seamen in their place it was the same with the larger vessels the madison might at one time have her full complement of two hundred men a month's sickness would ensue and she would sail with but 150 effectives the pike's crew of 300 men at one time would shortly afterward be less by a third in consequence of a draft of sailors being sent to the upper lakes so it is almost impossible to be perfectly accurate but making a comparison of the various authorities from lieutenant emmons to james the following tables of the forces may be given as very nearly correct in broadside force i count every pivot gun and half of those that were not on pivots chauncey's squadron 
pike was a ship eight hundred and seventy five tons three hundred crew metal of three hundred sixty pounds twenty eight long twenty fours the madison a ship five hundred ninety three tons a crew of two hundred three hundred sixty four pounds of metal twenty four short thirty twos the oneida a brig 243 tons, 100 crew, 172 pounds of metal, 16 24s. The Hamilton, a schooner, 112 tons, 50 crew, 80 pounds broadside, one long 32, one long 24, and eight long sixes. The Scourge, a schooner, 110 tons, 50 crew, 80 pounds broadside, one long 32, eight short 12s. The Conquest, a schooner, 82 tons, 40 crew, 56 pounds of broadside metal, one long 32, one long 12, and four long 6s. The Tompkins, a schooner, 96 tons, 40 crew, 62 pounds of broadside metal, one long 32, one long 12, and six long 6s. The Julia, a schooner, 82 tons, 35 crew, 44 pounds broadside metal. One long 32, one long 12. The Growler, a schooner, 81 tons, 35 crew, 44 pounds of broadside metal. One long 32, one long 12. The Ontario, a schooner, 53 tons, 35 crew, 44 broadside pounds of metal, one long 32 and one long 12. Fair American, a schooner, 53 tons, 30 crew, 36 pounds of broadside metal, one long 24 and one long 12. The Pert, a schooner, 50 tons, 25 crew, 24 pounds broadside metal, one long 24. The Asp, a schooner, 57 tons, 25 crew, 24 pounds of broadside metal, one long 24. Lady of the Lake, a schooner, 89 tons, 15 crew, 9 pounds of broadside metal, one long 9 inch. For a total of 14 ships, 2,576 tons, 980 crew, 1,399 pounds of broadside metal, and 112 guns. This is not materially different from James's account, page 356, which gives Chauncey 114 guns, 1,193 men, and 2,121 tons. The Lady of the Lake, however, was never intended for anything but a dispatch boat, and the Scourge and Hamilton were both lost before Chauncey actually came into collision with Yeo. Deducting these in order to compare the two foes, Chauncey had left eleven vessels of 2,265 tons with 865 men and 92 guns throwing a broadside of 1,230 pounds. Yeo's squadron. The Wolf was a ship, 637 tons, 220 crew, 392 pounds of broadside metal, one long 24, eight long 18s, four short 68s, 
ten short thirty-twos. The Royal George, a ship, 510 tons, 200 crew, 360 pounds of broadside metal, three long 18s, two short 68s, 16 short 32s. The Melville was a brig, 279 tons, 100 crew, 210 pounds of broadside metal, two long 18s, 12 short 32s. The Moira, a brig, 262 tons, 100 crew, 153 pounds of broadside metal, two long nines, 12 short 24s. The Sydney Smith, a schooner, 216 tons, 80 crew, 172 pounds of broadside metal, two long 12s, 10 short 32s. The Beresford, a schooner, 187 tons, 70 crew, 87 pounds of broadside metal, one long twenty-four, one long nine, and six short eighteens. For a grand total of six ships, two thousand ninety-one tons, seven hundred and seventy crew, one thousand three hundred seventy-four pounds of broadside metal, and ninety-two guns. This differs slightly from James, who gives Yeo ninety-two guns, throwing a broadside of one thousand three hundred seventy-four pounds, but only 717 men. As the evidence of the court-martial held on Captain Barclay and the official accounts on both sides of McDonough's victory convict him of very much underrating the force in men of the British on Erie and Champlain, it can be safely assumed that he has underestimated the force in men on Lake Ontario. By comparing the tonnage he gives to Barclay's and Downey's squadrons, with which it really was, we can correct his account of Yeo's tonnage. The above figures would apparently make the two squadrons about equal, Chauncey having ninety-five men more, and throwing in a broadside one hundred forty-four pounds shot less than his antagonists. But the figures do not by any means show all the truth. The Americans greatly excelled in the number and caliber of their long guns. Compared thus, they threw at one discharge 694 pounds of long gun metal and 536 pounds of carronade metal, while the British only threw from their long guns 180 pounds, and from their carronades 1,194. This unequal distribution of metal was very much in favor of the Americans. Nor was this all. The pike, with her fifteen long twenty-fours in battery, was an overmatch for any of the enemy's vessels, and bore the same relation to them that the Confiance, at a later date, did to MacDonough's squadron. She should certainly have been a match for the Wolf and Melville together, and the Madison and Oneida for the Royal George and Sidney Smith. In fact, the three heavy American vessels ought to have been an overmatch for the four heaviest of the British squadron, although these possessed the nominal superiority. And in ordinary cases, the eight remaining American gun vessels would certainly seem to be an overmatch for the two British schooners. But it is just here that the difficulty of comparing the forces comes in. 
when the water was very smooth and the wind light the long thirty-twos and twenty-fours of the americans could play havoc with the british schooners at a distance which would render the carronades of the latter useless but the latter were built for war possessed quarters and were good cruisers while chauncey's schooners were merchant vessels without quarters crank and so loaded down with heavy metal that whenever it blew at all hard they could with difficulty be kept from upsetting and ceased to be capable even of defending themselves when sir james yeo captured two of them he would not let them cruise with his other vessels at all but sent them back to act as gunboats in which capacity they were serving when recaptured this is a tolerable test of their value compared to their opponents another disadvantage that chauncey had to contend with was the difference in speed of the various vessels the pike and madison were fast weatherly ships but the oneida was a perfect slug even going free and could hardly be persuaded to beat to windward at all in this respect yeo was much better off his six ships were regular men of war with quarters all of them seaworthy and fast enough to be able to act with uniformity and not needing to pay much regard to the weather his force could act as a unit but chauncey's could not enough wind to make a good working breeze for his larger vessels put all his smaller ones hors de combat and in weather that suited the latter the former could not move about at all when speed became necessary the two ships left the brig hopelessly behind and either had to do without her or else perhaps let the critical moment slip by while waiting for her to come up some of the schooners sailed quite as slowly and finally it was found out that the only way to get all the vessels into action at once was to have one half the fleet tow the other half it was certainly difficult to keep the command of the lake when if it came on to blow the commodore had to put into port under penalty of seeing a quarter of his fleet founder before his eyes these conflicting considerations render it hard to pass judgment but on the whole it would seem as if chauncey was the superior in force for even if his schooners were not counted his three square-rigged vessels were at least a match for the four square-rigged british vessels and the two british schooners would not have counted very much in such a conflict in calm weather he was certainly the superior this only solves one of the points in which the official letters of the two commanders differ after every meeting each one insists that he was inferior in force that the weather suited his antagonist and that the latter ran away and got the worst of it all of which will be considered further on in order to settle toward which side of the balance of success inclined we must remember that there were two things the combatants were trying to do vis-a-vis -vis. number one to damage the enemy directly by capturing or destroying his vessels this was the only object we had in view in sending out ocean cruisers but on the lakes it was subordinated 
to number two getting the control of the lake by which invaluable assistance could be rendered to the army the most thorough way of accomplishing this of course was by destroying the enemy's squadron but it could also be done by building ships too powerful for him to face or by beating him in some engagement which although not destroying his fleet would force him to go into port if one side was stronger then the weaker party by skilful manoeuvring might baffle the foe and rest satisfied by keeping the sovereignty of the lake disputed for as long as one squadron was not undisputed master it would not be of much assistance in transporting troops attacking forts or otherwise helping the military in eighteen thirteen the americans gained the first point by being the first to begin operations they were building a new ship afterward the pike at sackett's harbor the british were building two new ships each about two-thirds the force of the pike one at toronto then called york one at kingston before these were built the two fleets were just on a par the destruction of the pike would give the british the supremacy the destruction of either of the british ships provided the pike was saved would give the americans the supremacy both sides had already committed faults the americans had left sackett's harbor so poorly defended and garrisoned that it invited attack while the british had fortified kingston very strongly but had done little for york and moreover ought not to have divided their forces by building ships in different places commodore chauncey's squadron was ready for service on april nineteenth and on the twenty fifth he made sail with the madison lieutenant commander elliot floating his own broad pennant oneida lieutenant woolsey hamilton lieutenant mcpherson scourge mr osgood tompkins lieutenant brown conquest lieutenant pettigrew growler mr mix julia mr Trant, asp lieutenant smith pert lieutenant adams american lieutenant chauncey ontario mr stevens lady of the lake mr hin and raven transport having on board general dearborn and seventeen hundred troops to attack york which was garrisoned by about seven hundred british regulars and canadian militia under major general sheaf the new twenty-four gun ship was almost completed and the gloucester ten-gun brig was in port the guns of both vessels were used in defense of the port the fleet arrived before york early on april twenty seventh and the debarkation began at about eight a m the schooners beat up to the fort under a heavy cannonade and opened a spirited fire from their long guns while the troops went ashore under the command of brigadier general pike the boats were blown to leeward by the strong east wind and were exposed to a galling fire but landed the troops under cover of the grape thrown by the vessels the schooners now beat up to within a quarter of a mile from the principal work and opened heavily upon it 
while at the same time general pike and the main body of the troops on shore moved forward to the assault using their bayonets only the british regulars and canadian militia outnumbered three to one including the american sailors and with no very good defensive works of course had to give way having lost heavily especially from the fire of the vessels an explosion immediately afterward killed or wounded two hundred and fifty of the victors including general pike the americans lost on board the fleet four killed including midshipmen hayfield and thompson and eight wounded footnote letter of commodore chauncey april twenty eighth eighteen thirteen end of footnote and of the army footnote james military occurrences london eighteen eighteen volume one page one hundred fifty one end of footnote fourteen killed and thirty two wounded by the enemy's fire and fifty two killed and one hundred eighty wounded by the explosion total loss two hundred eighty eight the british regulars lost one hundred thirty killed and wounded including forty by the explosion footnote lossing's field book of the war of eighteen twelve page five hundred eighty one the accounts vary somewhat and footnote together with fifty canadians and indians making a total of one hundred eighty besides two hundred ninety prisoners the twenty-four gun ship was burned her guns taken away and the gloucester sailed back to sackett's harbor with the fleet many military and naval stores were destroyed and much more shipped to the harbor the great fault that the british had committed was in letting the defenses of so important a place remain so poor and the force in it so small it was impossible to resist very long when pike's troops were landed and the fleet in position on the other hand the americans did the work in good style the schooners were finely handled firing with great precision and completely covering the troops who in turn were disembarked and brought into action very handsomely after being detained in york a week by bad weather the squadron got out and for the next fortnight was employed in conveying troops and stores to general dearborn then it was determined to make an attack on fort george where the british general vincent was stationed with from one thousand footnote james military operations volume one page one hundred fifty one end of footnote to eighteen hundred footnote lossing page five ninety six end of footnote regulars six hundred militia and about one hundred indians the american troops numbered about forty five hundred practically under the command of colonel scott on may twenty sixth commodore chauncey carefully reconnoitred the place to be attacked and in the night made soundings along the coast and laid buoys so as to direct the small vessels who were to do the fighting at three a m on the twenty seventh the signal was made to weigh the heavy land artillery being on the madison and the other troops on the oneida the lady of the lake and in bateau many of which had been captured at york the julia growler and ontario moved in and attacked a battery 
near the lighthouse opening a cross-fire which silenced it the troops were to be disembarked farther along the lake near a battery of one long twenty-four managed by canadian militia the conquest and tompkins swept in under fire to this battery and in ten minutes killed or drove off the artillerymen who left the gun spiked and then opened on the british the american ships with their heavy discharges of round and grape too well succeeded in thinning the british ranks footnote james military occurrences volume one page one fifty one end of footnote meanwhile the troop boats under captain perry and colonel scott dashed in completely covered by a heavy fire of grape directed point-blank at the foe by the hamilton scourge and asp the fire from the american shipping committed dreadful havoc among the british and rendered their efforts to oppose the landing of the enemy ineffectual footnote previous cited location end of footnote colonel scott's troops thus protected made good their landing and met the british regulars but the latter was so terribly cut up by the tremendous discharges of grape and canister from the schooners that in spite of their gallantry and discipline they were obliged to retreat blowing up and abandoning the fort one sailor was killed and two wounded footnote letter of commodore chauncey may twenty ninth eighteen thirteen end of footnote seventeen soldiers were killed and forty-five wounded footnote letter of general dearborn may twenty seventh eighteen thirteen end of footnote making the total american loss sixty-five of the british regulars fifty-two were killed forty-four wounded and two hundred and sixty-two wounded and missing footnote letter of brigadier general vincent may twenty eighth eighteen thirteen end of footnote in addition to about forty canadians and indians hors de combat and nearly five hundred militia captured so that in this very brilliant affair the assailants suffered hardly more than a fifth of the loss in killed and wounded that the assailed did which must be attributed to the care with which chauncey had reconnoitred the ground and prepared the attack the excellent handling of the schooners and the exceedingly destructive nature of their fire the british batteries were very weak and moreover badly served the regular troops fought excellently it was impossible for them to stand against the fire of the schooners which should have been engaged by the batteries on shore and they were too weak in numbers to permit the american army to land and then attack it when away from the boats the americans were greatly superior in force and yet deserve very much credit for achieving their object so quickly with such light loss to themselves and at such a heavy cost to the foe the effect of the victory was most important the british evacuating the whole niagara frontier and leaving the river in complete possession of the americans for the time being this offered the opportunity for dispatching captain perry up above the falls to take out one 
captured brig the caledonia and four purchased schooners which had been lying in the river unable to get past the british batteries into lake erie these five vessels were now carried into that lake being tracked up against the current by oxen to become a most important addition to the american force upon it while chauncey's squadron was thus absent at the west end of the lake the wolf twenty four was launched and equipped at kingston making the british force on the lake superior to that of the americans immediately sir george prevost and sir james lucas yeo the commanders-in-chief of the land and water forces in the canadas decided to strike a blow at sackett's harbor and destroy the general pike twenty eight thus securing to themselves the superiority for the rest of the season accordingly they embarked on may twenty seventh in the wolf royal george moira prince regent simcoe and seneca with a large number of gunboats barges and bateaux and on the next day saw and attacked a brigade of nineteen boats transporting troops to sackett's harbor under command of lieutenant aspinwall twelve boats were driven ashore and seventy of the men in them captured but lieutenant aspinwall and one hundred men succeeded in reaching the harbor bringing up the total number of regulars there to five hundred men general brown having been summoned to take the chief command about four hundred militia also came in but were of no earthly service there were however two hundred albany volunteers under colonel mills who could be relied on the defences were miserably inadequate consisting of a battery of one long gun and a blockhouse on the twenty ninth sir george prevost and eight hundred regulars landed being covered by the gunboats under sir james lucas yeo the american militia fled at once but the regulars and volunteers held their ground in and around the blockhouse at this point the further energies of the british troops became unavailing the american blockhouse and stockade could not be carried by assault nor reduced by field pieces had we been provided with them the fire of the gunboats proved insufficient to attain that end light and adverse winds continued and our larger vessels were still far off footnote letter of adjutant general baines may thirtieth eighteen thirteen and a footnote the british re-embarked precipitately the american loss amounted to twenty-three killed and one hundred fourteen wounded that of the british to fifty-two killed and two hundred eleven wounded footnote james military occurrences page one seventy three end of footnote most of the latter being taken prisoners during the fight some of the frightened americans set fire to the storehouses the pike and the gloucester the former were consumed but the flames were extinguished before they did any damage to either of the vessels this attack differed especially from those on fort george and york in that the attacking force was relatively much weaker still it ought to have been successful but sir george 
could not compare as a leader with Colonel Scott or General Pike, and Sir James did not handle the gunboats by any means as well as the Americans did their schooners in similar attacks. The admirers of Sir James lay the blame on Sir George and vice versa, but in reality neither seems to have done particularly well. At any rate, the affair was a reverse of creditable to the British. The British squadron returned to Kingston, and Chauncey, having heard that they were out, came down the lake and went into port about June 2nd. So far the Americans had had all the success and had controlled the lake, but now Yeo's force was too formidable to be encountered until the pike was built, and the supremacy passed undisputed into his hands, while Chauncey lay in Sackett's harbor. Of course, with the pike soon to be built, Yeo's uncontested superiority could be of but short duration, but he used his time most actively. He sailed from Kingston on the 3rd of June to cooperate with the British army at the head of the lake, and intercept all supplies going to the Americans. On the 8th he discovered a small camp of the latter near Forty Mile Creek, and attacked it with the Beresford, Sydney, Smith, and gunboats, obliging the Americans to leave their camp while their equipages, provisions, stores, and bateaux fell into the hands of the British, whose troops occupied the post, thus assisting in the series of engagements which ended in the humiliating repulse of General Wilkinson's expedition into Canada. On the 13th, two schooners and some boats bringing supplies to the Americans were captured, and on the 16th a depot of provisions at the Genesee River shared the same fate. On the 19th a party of British soldiers were landed by the fleet at Great Sodas, and took off six hundred barrels of flour. Yeo then returned to Kingston, where he anchored on the 27th, having done good service in assisting the land forces. Footnote, letter of Sir James Lucas Yeo to Mr. Croker, June 29, 1813, end of footnote. As a small compensation, on the 18th of the same month, the Lady of the Lake, Lieutenant Wolcott Chauncey, ca captured off Pesky Island, the British schooner Lady Murray, containing one ensign, fifteen soldiers, and six sailors, together with stores and ammunition. Footnote, letter of Lieutenant Walcott Chauncey to Commander Chauncey, June 18, 1813. End of footnote. During the early part of July, neither squadron put out in force, although on the first of the month Commodore Yeo made an abortive attempt to surprise Sackett's Harbor but abandoned it when it was discovered. Meanwhile, the Americans were building a new schooner, the Sylph, and the formidable corvette Pike was made ready to sail by July 21st. On the same day, the entire American squadron, or fleet, sailed up to the head of the lake and reached Niagara on the 27th. Here Colonel Scott and some of his regulars were embarked and on the 30th a descent was made upon York, where eleven transports were destroyed, five cannon, a quantity of flour, and some ammunition carried off, 
and the barracks burned. On the 3rd of August the troops were disembarked at the Niagara, and 111 officers and men were sent up to join Perry on Lake Erie. As this left the squadron much deranged, 150 militia were subsequently lent it by General Boyd, but they proved of no assistance beyond swelling the numbers of men Yeo captured in the Growler and Julia, from seventy individuals to eighty, and were again landed. Commodore Yeo sailed with his squadron from Kingston on August 2nd, and on the 7th the two fleets for the first time came in sight of one another, the Americans at anchor off Fort Niagara, the British six miles to windward in the west-northwest. Chauncey's squadron contained one corvette, one ship sloop, one brig sloop, and ten schooners, manned by about 965 men, and throwing at a broadside of 1,390 pounds of shot, nearly 800 of which were from long guns. Yeo's included two ship sloops, two brig sloops, and two schooners manned by 770 men and throwing a broadside of 1,374 pounds, but 180 being from long guns. But Yeo's vessels were all built with bulwarks, while ten of Chauncey's had none. And moreover, his vessels could all sail and maneuver together, while, as already remarked, one-half of the American fleet spent a large part of its time towing the other half. The pike would at ordinary range be a match for the wolf and Melville together, yet in actual weight of metal she threw less than the former ship alone. In calm weather the long guns of the American schooners gave them a great advantage. In rough weather they could not be used at all. Still on the whole, it could fairly be said that Yeo was advancing to attack a superior fleet. All through the day of the 7th the wind blew light and variable, and the two squadrons went through a series of maneuvers nominally to bring on an action. As each side flatly contradicts the other, it is hard to tell precisely what the maneuvers were. Each captain says the other avoided him, and that he made all sail in chase. At any rate, it was just the weather for Chauncey to engage in. That night the wind came out squally, and about a 1 a.m. on the morning of the 8th a heavy gust struck the Hamilton and Scourge, forcing them to careen over till the heavy guns broke loose and they foundered, but sixteen men escaping, which accident did not open a particularly cheerful prospect to the remainder of the schooners. Chauncey's force was by this accident reduced to a numerical equality with Yeo's, having perhaps a hundred more men. Footnote. This estimate as to men is a mere balancing of probabilities. If James underestimates the British force on Ontario as much as he has on Erie and Champlain, Yeo had as many men as his opponent. Chauncey, in one of his letters, preserved with the other manuscript letters in the Naval Archives, says, I enclose the muster-rolls of all my ships, but I have not been able to find them, and in any event the compliments were continually changing completely. 
the point is not important as each side certainly had plenty of men on this occasion End of footnote, and throwing one hundred and forty four pounds less shot at a broadside all through the two succeeding days the same manoeuvring went on the question as to which avoided the fight is simply one of veracity between the two commanders and of course each side to the end of time will believe its own leader but it is not of the least consequence as neither accomplished anything on the tenth the same tedious evolutions were continued but at seven p m the two squadrons were tolerably near one another yeo to windward the breeze being fresh from the southwest commodore chauncey formed his force in two lines on the port tack while commodore yeo approached from behind and to windward in single column on the same tack commodore chauncey's weather line was formed of the julia growler pert asp ontario and american in that order and the lee line of the pike oneida madison tompkins and conquest chauncey formed his weather line of the smaller vessels directing them when the british should engage to edge away and form to leeward of the second line expecting that sir james would follow them down at eleven the weather line opened fire at a very long range at eleven fifteen it was returned and the action became general and harmless at eleven thirty the weather line bore up and passed to leeward except the julia and growler which tacked the british ships kept their luff and cut off the two that had tacked while commodore chauncey's lee line edged away two points to lead the enemy down not only to engage him to more advantage but to lead him from the julia and growler footnote letter of commodore isaac chauncey august thirteenth eighteen thirteen and a footnote of course the enemy did not come down and the julia and growler were not saved yeo kept on till he had cut out the two schooners fired an ineffectual broadside at the other ships and tacked after the growler and julia then when too late chauncey tacked also and stood after him the schooners meanwhile kept clawing to windward till they were overtaken and after making a fruitless effort to run the gauntlet through the enemy's squadron by putting before the wind were captured yeo's account is simple came within gunshot of pike and madison when they immediately bore up fired their stern chase guns and made all sail for niagara leaving two of their schooners astern which we captured footnote letter of sir james lucas yeo august tenth eighteen thirteen and a footnote the british had acted faultlessly and the honor and profit gained by the encounter rested entirely with them on the contrary neither chauncey nor his subordinates showed to advantage cooper says that the line of battle was singularly well adapted to draw the enemy down and admirable for its advantages and ingenuity in the first place it is an open question whether the enemy needed drawing down 
on this occasion he advanced boldly enough the formation may have been ingenious but it was the reverse of advantageous it would have been far better to have had the strongest vessels to windward and the schooners with their long guns to leeward where they would not be exposed to capture by any accidents happening to them moreover it does not speak well for the discipline of the fleet that two commanders should have directly disobeyed orders and when the two schooners did tack and it was evident that sir james could cut them off it was an extraordinary proceeding for chauncey to edge away to points to lead the enemy from the growler and julia it is certainly a novel principle that if part of a force is surrounded the true way to rescue it is to run away with the balance in hopes that the enemy will follow had chauncey tacked at once sir james would have been placed between two fires and it would have been impossible for him to capture the schooners as it was the british commander had attacked a superior force in weather that just suited it and yet had captured two of its vessels without suffering any injury beyond a few shot holes in the sails the action however was in no way decisive all next day the eleventh the fleets were in sight of one another the british to windward but neither attempted to renew the engagement the wind grew heavier and the villainous little american schooners showed such strong tendencies to upset that two had to run into niagara bay to anchor with the rest chauncey ran down the lake to sackett's harbor which he reached on the thirteenth provisioned his squadron for five weeks and that same evening proceeded up the lake again the advantage in this action had been entirely with the british but it is simple nonsense to say as one british historian does that on lake ontario therefore we at last secured a decisive predominance which we maintained until the end of the war footnote history of the british navy by charles duke young london eighteen sixty six volume three page twenty four it is apparently not a work of any authority but i quote it as showing probably the general feeling of british writers about the action and its results which can only proceed from extreme partisanship and ignorance of the subject and a footnote this decisive battle left the americans just as much in command of the lake as the british and even this very questionable predominance lasted but six weeks after which the british squadron was blockaded in port most of the time the action has a parallel in that fought on the twenty second of july eighteen o five by sir robert calder's fleet of fifteen sail of the line against the franco-spanish fleet of twenty sail of the line under monsieur villeneuve footnote bataille navale de la france par autrude volume three page three fifty two it seems rather ridiculous to compare these lake actions fought between small flotillas with the gigantic contests which the huge fleets of europe waged in contending for the supremacy of the ocean 
but the difference is of one of degree and not of kind and they serve well enough for purposes of illustration or comparison and a footnote the two fleets engaged in a fog and the english captured two ships when both sides drew off and remained in sight of each other the next day without either renewing the action a victory therefore it was that sir robert calder had gained but not a decisive nor a brilliant victory footnote james's naval history volume four page fourteen and a footnote this is exactly the criticism that should be passed on sir james lucas yeo's action of the tenth of august End of part 10